brother and his family. He goes out to the prisons so often and brings the love of Jesus. And uh, I know it's as much a blessing to you as to them, Ernie. Well, for those of you visiting today here at Lake Avenue Church, we've been in a series of psalms that we've called Heart Cries, where psalms are written when a person has a deep heart cry inside for God to show up and to do some things. So today we come to the one that I call uh, conflicted, when we feel conflicted inside. And I tell you why I've chosen it today. It's because with this uh, big uh, national election day coming up on Tuesday, and with the, both candidates of each one of the major parties having the lowest approval and favorability ratings of any candidate since this thing's been measured, the word that I keep hearing everywhere is people say, well, I feel conflicted. And, I, and, I, and even those of us who come to church, I imagine that maybe some of us feel that way today too. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to tell you how to vote today, though at the end, if you'll stick with me, I'm going to say a few words about voting our Christian convictions. But what I've done is I've pulled aside and I've just really been praying, Lord, what would your word have to say to us at a time such as this? And the word that just kept coming back to my mind is this word conflicted. And I don't know if you know this, but there are 150 psalms, and many of these psalms have been written specifically in times when the psalm writer was inside feeling ripped apart, what was feeling conflicted. And so today I've just chosen one of them, one of my very favorites, the one that Ernie read to us, Psalm 62. It was written by King David. Now, I'm sure he wasn't trying to teach us how we're supposed to vote because he was the king. He didn't have to be voted on. But, but, but it does describe for us how a person whose faith really is in God but goes through a time which we just don't know what to do. How we go from that place of feeling conflicted to actually having confidence that this is what we should do. You know what I mean when I say conflicted? The, the opposite of, of being conflicted is to have this singleness of mind. Those times when you absolutely know what is right, or for us as Christians, what God would have us to do. On the other side, being conflicted is just the opposite. It feels like from inside out, we're being pulled in two different directions. I'll just tell you, when you feel conflicted, decision-making becomes so tough. In fact, sometimes, whichever decision you make, it seems to be the wrong one. So today, you may have come to this worship service feeling some of those inner conflictedness in in your soul. It may be over the national election. It might be something else that's happening in your relationships, in school, whatever else is happening. Uh, Well, today, what we're going to do is to look at King David in a time of him being conflicted. In the midst of that confliction, he went to worship, and at the end, he wasn't really feeling conflicted anymore. So I hope the same thing will happen to us today. Let me give you a brief overview of this psalm. If you have a Bible, do you notice that uh, there's a superscription here? And David says he's going to write this song for the director of worship and the arts. It's for a man named Jedithun. Do we have any Jedithuns here uh, today? I've wondered whether Jeremy or uh, Dwayne's middle name might be Jedithun. All right, for Dwayne Jedithun Funderburk, a song of David. The thing you need to know about David is when he wrote songs for his director of music, he himself was a tremendous musician. And when you look at his psalms, it just gives the artistry that that poets and that musicians often have. And in this one, you may not see it in the English version, but it is so beautifully put together. 
There's one word you can't recognize it in English, in his own language, in Hebrew. It happens over and over again, and it gives emphasis to the psalm, and it gives symmetry to the poetry. And this Hebrew word is the word ak, and it means only, only, only. And you can almost feel it whenever there are all sorts of things that may pull us this way or that. He had to get his mind together only, only, only one thing, only one person is the person I have to please only. And you'll just see it over and over. Only God can take my troubled soul and bring it together. Only God is worthy of being a fortress. And so what happened that day is he went into the worship, really being torn apart inside. Uh, he, he continued to feel it in the midst of the worship service. But he went out of the service with his heart at rest. And I'm just praying, I'm praying that it might happen for some of us today. So let's see how David leads us through this. The song has three stanzas, just like many of the songs that we sing. And it's broken by that little word, Selah. Did you notice it as Ernie read? And you did it just right, Ernie. Uh, it means probably a musical pause. It means let's stop for a while and think about what we've just heard. So let's see what he says in these stanzas. In the first one, he wants us to feel what it's like. I've called it the conflicted state, and you can especially see it in the last line in verse 2, I will not be greatly shaken. So verses 1 through 4 is one stanza. And to really be able to feel what this song is about, you've got to read it all at once. And you'll see that verses 1 through 2 seem a whole lot different from 3 and 4. Verses 1 through 2 is just like what we've been doing all morning. It was like him singing a worship song. In fact, many of these worship songs were taken from Psalm 62. Did you notice that? He's singing, there is only one way who can take my divided soul and bring me rest. There is only one rock, one fortress, one salvation. It is you, O God. So it seems like he is rock solid, right? Uh, No, no, no. In the midst of the worship service, his mind begins to wonder. That never happens to anybody at Lake Avenue Church. Never happens in a sermon, right? That when I begin speaking, your mind begins wondering. And what it began wandering to is all the trouble that he was having. And so even as he was singing, at, at the end of verse 2, our English versions don't show it well. Sometimes they say, I will not be shaken, or I will not be shaken at all. But that's not what the Hebrew word is. It, it says, I will not be greatly shaken. Oh, Lord, you're my rock, so I'm, I'm not going to be shaken much. Because he was being shaken. He was the king, and he was going to be toppled from his kingdom People even very close to him were speaking about him and and troubling him. And even though he should have felt strong, God, you are my fortress, you are my rock, you are my strength, he didn't feel strong. So read verses 3 and 4. You know what? I feel like God, he says. I feel like a leaning wall. I feel like a tottering fence. I don't feel strong at all. I'm going to be blown away and lose my my position. Just so you can see it and feel it, I I went online and I found a a tottering fence. Do Do you see it? Ever felt like that? I mean, if a windstorm comes, you're not going to sit on that thing much, are you? (laughs) See, King David, that's how he felt one day in worship. He came in and, and, and he believed in God. There's no doubt about that. But in the midst of that worship, he still was having this kind of conflictedness that takes place. And I've, I've asked myself, Lord, what, what can happen that will get our eyes off of you, even as we're praising you? And, and start bringing us into all sorts of doubts. And they're just the, the normal things. Getting our focus off of God and sometimes 
on the people. He did that for a while because often those closest to him, maybe even his sons at this time, were turning against him. Have you ever felt that when somebody that you were trusting seemed to almost betray you? Maybe it's your boss that gave you a great job review and you thought you were going to get a raise, you thought you were going to get a promotion, the next day he fires you. Maybe it's a friend that you thought, I'm going to invite her to prom. I think she really likes me. She keeps hanging around me. Only to find out that the only reason she was hanging around you was because she liked your best friend and wanted to go with him. And you're just, just so many things in our relationships to people can absolutely shake us and, and, and make us doubt. Some, sometimes it's not people that let us down. Sometimes it's the circumstances around us. I've thought especially in these times that we may be, and I've heard it from so many, that what's happening in our nation is so distressing for many people. And I've even heard Christians sort of talk like this. Well, if such and such gets elected, the whole nation is going to fall apart. The future is going to be bleak. We've got to do it because it feels like they're saying God can't do it. As if the book of Romans doesn't tell us that there's no authority ever that's going to be appointed that isn't under his authority. But we get our minds off of that. And when the circumstances around us, they don't have to be politics. They can be finances. They can be just trouble in our family. You know what? Marriage can be so many things. We get our mind off onto the circumstances around us. They feel bigger than God. And, and we begin to feel conflicted. Or the other thing is, of course, not people or circumstances, but, but what's inside of ourselves. Those who weren't here last week, I, I had another Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 51, where inside of him he came into worship. He really belonged to God, and yet there were things in his lives that were wrong. He had sinned against God. And so I, I'm sure many of us here have experienced that, maybe all of us. When we come into church and we worship, we even receive communion, and we know there are things, unconfessed sin in our lives. Don't we, we feel like hypocrites, right? Feels duplicitous. And unless we get that thing right with God and hear him say, that sin I'll remember no more, then, then we are ripped apart. Now, now listen to me carefully. When I, when I say we can't get our minds off of God and focus on people, circumstances, or ourselves. I'm not saying that you and I should not care what other people think. I think those relationships with people are very important. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about circumstances. That, that we'd say, well, it doesn't really matter what happens on Tuesday, so I won't even vote, I won't do anything. No, 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 we're to be involved in our world. Circumstances really do matter. We are to play a role in our world. And we're, so, I'm certainly not saying that you shouldn't care about what is happening inside your own soul. What I am saying is this, that if any of those things come to, into the place of God, if any of those things begin to seem to be more important or more weighty or more powerful than God, then your eyes are in the wrong place. And you will be conflicted. And it will be, feel like you're being ripped apart. So that's what David wants us to feel in this first stanza. And as I read it, I thought of a book that a good friend of mine has written. His name is Alec Hill. He was the former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He used to be the dean of the School of Business at Seattle Pacific University. He wrote this a book called Just Business, a business folk series. I think you'd like to read it. And there was one phrase that I've never forgotten when I read it. He said this, and this is what conflictedness feels like. Trying to live out God's principles in today's business world 
sometimes feels like jumping on two horses, which then ride off in two different directions. Selah. Think about it. Have you ever felt like David did? What do you do? Stanza two. This is a great song. What we should do, and I've called it the conscious step of faith, in which David turns to himself and he says, Soul, find rest in God alone. So if you have your song in front of you, you'll see verses five and six. They're marvelous verses. They're a whole lot like, and some of the very same words as verses one through two, but there is a big difference. In verses one and two, he's simply telling us what he believes. I believe that God is my rock. I believe that God is a fortress. I believe that God saves. That's what he believes. But in between, he was beginning to doubt. In verses 5 and 6, he engages in a conscious act of faith. He takes what he believes and he applies it to his situation. It's like he's preaching to himself. And he says, okay, soul, you believe that God is the maker of heaven and earth and that he is your God and that he is with you. Soul, find rest in God. Trust him. All right, if if your mind had just started wandering, get back with me. (laughs) So I've been a follower of Jesus over 55 years of my life. There is something that I began to learn, it was probably about 30 years ago, that's been so life-changing, almost day, day after day for me, that I want to pass on here to you that I find that so much of my walk with the Lord in this imperfect world where things happen that draw us away from God, these times come when almost like the first time you ever believe in Jesus, you've got to come to God and say, Lord, I believe in you, and yet this thing seems to be so big. I've been worrying about it. Lord, intentionally, consciously, I will trust you. I, I call it an intentional, conscious Step of faith. And it's one of those things that almost becomes a day-by-day part of our walk with the Lord. Let me just tell you, this really came alive to me again this week. This last Thursday, two people from our church, whom I've really come to love, came into my office. They've, they've given me permission to talk about this, so I want you to know that. Their names are Elliot and Alyssa Brown. If you haven't met them, they're a wonderful couple in our church. They came in to see me just after their little son, Timothy, had died in infancy. Now, some of you know Chris and my story. As they spoke to me about their experience of losing their little son, I remembered so vividly when Chris and I had the very same experience. I'll probably weep. We'll see if I can make it through. It was when our second child, our second daughter, died. Talking with Elliot, listening to them and and Alyssa, I saw immediately as their pastor that they had this, what I call, a biblically directed way of making decisions. You know, a Christ-centered way of making decisions. They already knew that there was trouble in the pregnancy early on. And so many of the medical people were trying to get them to make decisions that would keep them from pain, to to abort the child, so many things. But they made decisions that that were consistent with what they thought would honor and please God. And, and, And decisions, I believe, as their pastor was right. And yet, in spite of the fact that the decisions they were made were made simply to obey and to honor God. When little Timothy was born, he soon died. I'm telling you, in, in my office that morning, I saw two people who would understand Psalm 62. 
How they would say, I believe in God, but God, I don't understand what you are doing. This world seems to be falling apart. I just remembered as I talked with them, I mean, through tears from all three of us as we were sitting in the office, how one night after our own daughter had died, I was asking the Lord, why on earth or in heaven would you let a child die? I was pastoring a little bitty church up in uh, Arroyo Grande at the time. And the following Sunday, I was supposed to be preaching from John 13 and 14. I don't know if you know that text. Jesus had just turned to his disciples and he said, I know you've left everything behind and everybody else has abandoned you, but I have another piece of news for you. I'm going to leave you too. I'm going to die. And they were upset. And, and John 14, 1, here's what he said. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Huh, easy to say is what I, I thought. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then listen to what he said. You believe in God. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. And I am doing it for you. you I, I know where I'm going. I am going to prepare a place for you. If I don't go, you can't go. If, if I don't go and bear your sins upon myself when I die on that cross, there will be no way for you to have eternal life in that place where my Father has plenty of room for you there. Trust me. It sounds good when I talk about it now, but I'm telling you, when I read it that night, it was probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, up in Fresno, California, at the Ronald McDonald house. That's where I was. I just slammed my Bible closed. And I said, Lord, that's all. That's all you have to say. Like a little child, a parent telling a little child, you've got to trust us. We know where we're going. Just trust me. Lord, don't you know I'm a pastor? I've preached a lot of sermons about this. You can say more to me than that. Lord, I have a PhD in theology. <laughs> this is all you have to say to me. You believe in me, trust me. And I read that text again, and that's what he said to me. Greg, you believe in God. You've experienced the goodness of God. Now trust me. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I had a decision to make. A decision of faith to make. Would I trust him or would I not? I've got to tell you something else, too. In case you've grown up in the church like I did, my, my father became a believer when I was six, so I've been in the church my whole life. I always got this idea that Christian faith is about making a one-time decision of faith where I would give my sins to him and he would take them and cast them as far as east is from the west. I'd give my life to him and say, I'll accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I'm telling you, that's where it begins, isn't it? When we place our faith in him, Jesus says we are born again. We come alive to God. So it begins with that act of faith. But let me tell you something. That first act of faith leads to a life of faith. In this imperfect world, there are all sorts of things that happen that we cannot understand. And we have to have those times where we stop and say, Lord, I, it just seems to be bigger than even you are. And he says to you what he said to David and what he said to me, you believe in me. Now trust me. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And I'm doing it for you. That David made the decision that day. You can read it. Soul, find rest in God. And I'm telling you, that night I decided to do the same. 
I decided I, I cannot make any sense of, out of why, why a child dies, but Lord, I know you and I will trust you. You can read for David. It began to make a difference in his life. And now these many, many years later, I, I just tell you, if you will trust me on this, that it's made a difference in my own life. And it will in yours as well. Uh, David, you can see it immediately just in the way that he wrote his song. That kind of flimsy little statement at the end of verse 2 where he says, I'm not going to be greatly shaken. You know, I'm not going to be shaken much. Changes in verse 6 to the powerful, I will not be shaken for God is my fortress and my hope and my rock. And not only does he say that in verse 8, he goes out and gives testimony to everybody else. The king turns to all of his people and he says, listen to me, all you people. Pour out your souls, whatever is in your divided soul, to God, for he is your rock and your refuge. What he did, I do to you this morning. Have you come this morning with some conflict in your inner being? I want you to pour out your soul to him. I want you to not just keep it inside yourself, but to tell him this is what is... Ripping me apart, Lord, I pour it all out to you. And I pray that you will find what David found and that I have found and the believers throughout the histories have found. Namely, that he is who he says he is. He's a very present help in times of trouble. Amen. He is your rock and your refuge. He will never leave you alone. Selah. Okay, stanza three. Time's about over. You know, you've already been looking at your clock. Uh, we've got to look at this third stanza because I think David is kind of like him preaching a sermon to us, isn't it? And in this third stanza, what he does is he does what I try to do. What, what are you going to take home from this sermon? And so he says, what are you going to hold on to? And I've called it the convictions, verses 9 through 12. He really puts it all together. Uh, so in the first stanza, he started with God, and then all these other thoughts came into his Mind, and he turned away because of circumstances and people. In stanza three, he starts with circumstances and people, and he turns his mind to God, and he goes home at peace. So, and in all the midst of that, he has two main convictions that I want you to take home. And if there are difficulties that come up this week, I, I hope you'll just hold on to these. Number one is a conviction about people, and that is that people and things are not worthy of your worship. You're supposed to love them and thank God for them when they're good things, but they're not worthy of being the one that you worship because, as verse 9 says, they are but a breath. If you think that they're what life is all about, you'll find they are a delusion. So the, look at verse 9. He says, okay, the lowborn, they're a breath. And by that, he meant people who aren't the king. He <laughs> says, if, if you sometimes think those who are, uh, uh, don't have very much are much more trustworthy than the powerful and the rich, which we so often think, he says, no, 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 they're still people. And if you trust in them, they'll let you down to their breath. But if you're like so many and you think, oh, the highborn, you see how he puts that? They're a delusion too. They'll even lie to you. And that's been proven out throughout the centuries too. <laughs> he says, so don't put your trust in people. Well, you have a good relationship with people. Uh, thank God for it, but don't let that person become your God. And then he goes on. He says, it's not just people. It's also things and circumstances. They're inadequate to be your source of security and peace. And especially he takes on the one about riches. And he says, though your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. They're not, 
Money is a rotten God. That, that's essentially what he says here. It's a good thing to have, you know. That's why we take an offering. But, but it's not worth living for. It, it really isn't. And then I love it in verses 9b and putting all of these together. He says it's like a scale. Uh, it, these scales, the ancient scales you do, you'd put something, a rock in one side, and then you put a feather in the other, and you know which one is, is going to be more. He said, that's what it's like. Are you going to trust anything in this world or the one who made everything in this world? It made me think of my big brother. My big brother, Chuck, was two years older. He was a big guy, 6'1", 6'2", 275, football player, uh, weight lifter, ended up being a truck driver. So you, you got a feeling for this, don't you? So and he was so much bigger than I was as we were growing up. But when we would go to the local park, he loved to go to the teeter-totter. And he would he insist, as my, uh, you guys are ahead of me here. So uh, he, would, he would make me sit on the teeter I didn't want to do it. He'd make me sit on the teeter-totter. And then he would come running. I'd put a picture up here just so you can picture what happened. He would go and he would jump on the other side of the teeter-totter. And, you know, I was like nothing. You know, you have this massive weightlifting brother and this wimpy pastor-like brother, and you know what's going to happen. I'd go, either go flying off of that thing or, or I'd have to just hold on for dear life. I, I hated going to the park with my brother, but, <laughs> but I haven't forgotten it. And I put this here so that you won't forget it either. Because so many times we get our attention on to anything in this world instead of putting our trust into the God who made everyone and everything in this world. And, and you will find out that all the things in this world, if we rely on them and make them our gods, they're our idols, we've got to have them, they'll always let us down. People, things, circumstances, they are not worthy of your worship. Then his second conviction is about God. And it's already what you knew what it would be. Only God is worthy of your worship. And he tells us why. Because God, you are powerful and you are all loving. Um, if you're new to church, you may not have memorized very much of the Bible. If you start somewhere, this, these two verses are really good to start with. Uh, verses 11 through 12a. Here's what he says. Remember, he's a Jewish man. One thing God has spoken. Two things I have heard. This is a very Hebrew, very Jewish way of putting things. Uh, they would often say, there was one big thing that, that, I, that has come my way, but you can't understand that one big thing until you understand these two parts of that same thing. Two parts of the same coin. To, to only get one part of it is to miss it. What is it that God has revealed about himself? That God is powerful and God is loving. Both of those have to be there. There's no hope for us. You know, if someone is only powerful, they can use that power for violence, destruction, oppressiveness, abuse. It's good to be powerful, but just to be powerful isn't going to mean anything good will come out of that. On the other side, if you're just loving and not powerful, that means you're helpless yourself. It's hopeless. You're impotent. Uh, you may say, well, I really care, but I can't do anything about it. What we need is someone who is both powerful and can do something and loving and wants to do something, right? Anybody with me here? And what he declares to us is that God is both of these. He is all-powerful. Everything in this world is something he has made simply by speaking it into being. God is all-loving. 
loving so much that he sent his one and only son who out of love for you and me gave his life on the cross. We had communion today. We know how much he loves us. Hold on to those things. God is all powerful. God is all loving. Therefore, brothers and sisters, whatever may happen in our nation on Tuesday, when you get up on Wednesday, God will still be God. Because God works all things, all things together. The death of his son, the pain that we have in our world, the messes we might have in our nation, God is still God. He'll take what happens, even our choices to walk away, and he works all things together to bring about his good until all things are made right. God is on his throne, and God is all-powerful. He is all-loving. Do you believe it? today? Do you believe it today? If you do, if you do, then pour out your soul to him and trust everything in your life to him. Find rest. Find singleness in your being and you'll find it only, only, only in him. And it will be to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our musicians will come. And then I want to say a few words before you go. Father, take this word and speak to each one of us here today. If there's some people here who have never trusted Jesus for the first time, may this be the day that they are born again and made alive to you. Father, I pray that you would work in hearts today in that way. For the rest of us, Father, who have trusted you and yet so many other times turn away from you and look at things in this world, and they seem to be bigger than you are, we gather here today, Father, we worship you, and we see that you and you alone are God. And we tell you today, our faith is in you. Do your work in our heart. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I wonder, that was um, a hallelujah maybe that was there. <laughs> Let me just say a word briefly at the end about what's happening on Tuesday. Many of you have already voted. Uh, I've gotten to go to so many countries in the world in my life. And I'll tell you, we as American Christians have a privilege that I'm guessing most of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the centuries have not had. And that is the opportunity to vote. Uh, it's not a right. It's a, it's a, we're just blessed to be born here. And so I view such a thing as a stewardship. Do you know what I mean by that? A stewardship that God tells us to use our, our wisdom, biblical teaching, and our best understanding to make the best choice that we can. It's like parents. It's like children given to us are a stewardship. And, and when we have a stewardship like that, the Bible doesn't give us one, two, three, this is what you do every time with every child. It, it doesn't work that way, does it? With each one, each day, you've got to come and, and seek the Lord and say, Lord, give us wisdom. And the same thing is true, I think, about this stewardship 
of voting is that sometimes it's just hard to know how, what, how to vote because the fact is the kingdom of God is never going to be fully represented by any kingdom in this world. And so that any party or any individual not fully live up to God or, or, to, or to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what I'm getting at there. And yet we have been given this privilege and this stewardship, this opportunity to vote. And I'll just tell you, when you go into the booth, uh, first of all, I want you to do it because it's, a, it's an opportunity God has given you in this nation. But you have to use your best understanding of the wisdom of Scripture and of the character of Jesus to try to make the best decisions about each one of the things you'll be voting about. What, what do you do? I, I, I think all my life I've sort of said, I, I need to look at how the person has lived his or her life up to now. What decisions have they made? And then look at the policies they're advocating here. Are they consistent uh, with your word? That, then I always believe that in such thing we should look at the character of the individual. Has the person had a, a history of honesty? Uh, has the person treated other people well around him or her? See, as I speak these things, you're already becoming conflicted, aren't you? <laughs> it's where we are. This is where we're going to have to lean on the, on the Lord and, and do it. But here's what I've done and something I recommend to you. Uh, this last week, I decided I would take out the platforms of the two major parties. It's easy to find. You can just put a Republican national platform um, and, and, uh, and, and Google it, and you can, uh, or whatever mechanism you use, or you can, and Democratic National Platform, and what you find is they're both like 50 pages, and you say, that's too many. You have several days, but you can read it, and read it in the light of your understanding of Scripture. What you find in both of those platforms that really struck me is that they're kind of the extremes of what is already extremely different. Um, and you don't have to read the whole thing. You can identify the, the specific areas that you think are of great, great uh, importance in these days, like, like the sanctity of every human life. Where, where do they stand? Um, like, the, do, do they value? Do they value the, the people that the Bible particularly calls us to value? That would be the poor and the orphans and, and the widows you know, and the immigrant. Do they, so again, I'm making you conflicted, right? As you say, well, where do, where do we go with this thing? As you look at it, you, like I, will feel conflicted. I'll just tell you, you'll feel that. But you've got to know that this is a stewardship that God has given to you. And I believe that as you read those things and as you prayerfully consider it, God will lead you. Remember this, that you're not just voting for a president. But there are many local and state offices that you're going to be voting for. And so try to apply as best you can biblical wisdom and your understanding of what would please God to each one of those categories. 17 propositions that we have in the state of California. How do legislators ever legislate when it's kind of like a big congregational state where, I, anyway, I'm, that's just, I'm sorry. Um, but still, that's a part of being in California. And so pray about each one of them. Some of them for me were very, very clear. Otherwise, I'm still praying about it. And I just think you should say, Father, what, what would please you in the way that I vote? And, and remember that we can write in in California. You've got to find out the specific names that you can write in. So you can find that with a search mechanism too. But I, I believe that if you will make this a part of your faith walk with God, that just like every other stewardship he gives you, you will sense God guiding you. And however he guides you, and whatever he does, 
again, you're going to wake up on Sunday morning and you're going to find out that God is still on his throne and you're still going to be able to sing and say with David when he says, whatever happens in the politics in this nation, in this world, God, you are my fortress. You are my rock. You are my hope. You are my salvation. So I will never be afraid. So whatever happens in this world, we will walk with him and bring glory to his name. And I hope you'll be back again next Sunday because next Sunday we're going to gather in this place and we are going to hear from our Father's word and we're going to give our praise to him again, to his glory.